Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. I'm Oshita Moore. And I'm Jer Swigart. Join us as we grow our imaginations for joining God and others in mending divides. Hey friends, we are back together for another conversation. And I'm here with Jer. And Jer is supposed to be in Israel right now, but he's not. He is here with us, joining in from his home in Spokane, Washington. And he is going to share with us all that he has experienced this past week. Because as you know, there is violence uh, in the Middle East right now. There's violence and there's so much heartbreak and there are so many questions that we have. And Jer is my friend who I turn to when I have questions about what's going on with violence and turmoil and conflict and heartbreak in the Middle East. And so Jer is going to help us understand all of this. It's a very special conversation. It's a very holy conversation. And I'm just so grateful to have Jer in my life. So Jer, what is going on? Can you tell us how this past week and a half has been for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think adding to even to your introductory remarks, this is an incomplete, imperfect conversation. You know, so much, so much is in process, so much is shattering inside of me, so much is shattering in Israel and Palestine and Gaza. And, you know, so I hold even this conversation as very sacred space. It will be vulnerable and I'll take some risks to be exactly as I am in this moment coming out of it. But it's good to be with you, whether I was in Israel or in my home, I would have been on this with you. I was there because for the first time in almost four years, we had a delegation of peacemakers with us who were committed to training in the ways of peace. And it was the first time since COVID that we'd been able to actually build a delegation, this one from within a particular congregation in Bend, Oregon called Westside. And we'd been training together for about six months in preparation for this immersion. And then as is always the case for us, we believe that peacemakers are formed through immersing into the radical center of conflict because the best peacemakers in the planet live there. And, and that is absolutely true about Israel and Palestine. And our team worked hard to build out, I think, one of the best itineraries we've ever had to, to train our folk and everything was poised and ready to go. I got there a couple of days early just because it's been so long since I've been on the ground and my hope was to be able to spend some time with friends without other people with me for a change. And I got to be in the West Bank. I got to celebrate a birthday of one of our cherished sisters over there, a Palestinian sister named Manar. And her birthday wish was to go on a mountain biking adventure from Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives, to Jericho. So, uh, so why not, right? Let's mountain bike to Jericho. And we did that and it was incredible. And then that evening we were sitting overlooking Bethany, which is a place of resurrection. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. This is a place where Jesus would come and let his hair down and enter into mm -hmm. some unrushed time with friends. This is also a place of resurrection mm -hmm. because Lazarus was raised from the dead there. And we're overlooking Lazarus's tomb and, and violence began to crescendo. And on the one hand, my friends Milad and Minar were like, yeah, welcome to Friday night. 
here in Bethany. And then it started to get more and more intense to the point at which I noted in them that they were alarmed. And and then we actually went inside. And then the next morning, I awoke to rockets getting shot out of the air right above us. And so I knew then that things mm. were going to change and the environment of our training was going to become more dynamic than it already was going to be. I had six folks in the air already making their way into Israel and Palestine and four folks who were yet to take off. And I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to get out of the West Bank. And so we found a way to get me through heavily locked down checkpoints back into Israel proper from the West Bank. And then I was there to receive at least six of the members of our delegation for what would become four absolutely unforgettable days, heartbreaking days, some of the most intense days of training in my life and in navigating that with them. Ultimately, walking with them as we built nuanced understandings of what was going on all around us, moving in and out of stairwells and bomb shelters and working hard to expand the reach of our empathy and to deepen our understanding and ultimately working hard to evacuate these folks from what had become a war zone. So those four days felt like four years and uh, I'm so proud of of the team and their resilience and the way that they handled themselves. And uh, I'm so glad that they're out and am absolutely devastated that there are so many dear friends and millions of others who can't leave. And that's where we find ourselves right now in the midst of crescendoing violence. And it doesn't seem like there's going to be any kind of end in the near future to unthinkable levels of violence and trauma and terror and death. I'm now watching from afar, checking in with, with my people over there. And, and as a team, we here at Global Immersion are, are slowly gaining an understanding of what's ours to do in this moment in time. So that kind of brings us up to speed and lets you know kind of how I'm at and, and how I find myself today. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I, yeah, I was, I remember on Slack just watching you process what was going on for you while you were there. And as your friend, as your co-laborer in this work, just being really concerned about your safety and you getting home. And then you came back and we had a meeting as a team where you talked us through some of the things that were going on. And I personally, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be honest. I only have so much capacity for peacemaking work. Like there are the areas that I feel particularly called and drawn to and that I have the capacity to learn and be vocal about and and teach others around. And, and you know, for me, that's anti-racism. That's becoming the beloved community. And so whenever I hear anything about what's going on in the Middle East, whenever I hear about your work there, our delegations work there, I feel like out of the loop. I feel like I don't know enough. And I feel like even as I'm trying to learn, I feel like I'm getting so many different variations of the stories. And I have just been craving some time with you. And I would love for you to share with all of us, like, how do we understand as peacemakers who want the Imago Dei of all people to be honored, who desire to see peace for everyone? Like, how should we understand what's going on and how should we be talking about what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Oshita. I I think the most common sentiment in my now 12 years of navigating, which 12 years in the midst of a 75-year crisis is like a breath, you know? So my learning curve remains very steep, despite the fact that I've been in the trenches on this for 12 years. But 
the, the most common sentiment when you talk to anybody about the crisis between Israel and Palestine is it's complicated. <laughs> and unfortunately, <laughs> we we tend to leave it at that, I think, which gives everybody a lot of permission to be like, okay, well, then it's beyond my understanding. And I guess I'll just have to live with the, I don't get it, you know? In the days and weeks to come, I'm, I'm thrilled that Global Immersion is going to have the opportunity to amplify stories and perspectives from our Israeli and Palestinian and some U.S. American folk who are in the trenches and in the middle of this war. And we're going to be we're going to be visceral and real and multi-perspectived and multi-layered in helping grow a more robust understanding of how we got to this moment and how people are experiencing it uh, because everybody is experiencing it differently and everybody has a different understanding of how we got here and and one of one of my concerns even in offering some of my own reflections is that the human brain tends to want to just work in binaries and simplicities and i think a core practice of everyday peacemaking probably involves growing new brain folds but it means that we have to be able to hold multiple truths together and yeah. uh and rather than one understanding being prioritized or dominating another understanding i think we have to be the kinds of people who listen longer than feels comfortable to the point at which we can hold multiple truths and multiple experiences. Because one of my Israeli Jewish friends, their truth and their experience of this is true, even though it might differ from a Palestinian sister, a friend of mine who has a very different experience, a very different understanding, and it's very real for her. Both of these things are true. And so one yeah. of one of my concerns, even as I'm watching the chatter, and you know, it's wild to me, something happens in Israel, Palestine. You have truckloads of people who have given very little thought to this or done very little research, speaking with such polarizing certainty on who's right and who's wrong. And it's just unlike any other conflict or crisis in the world, really. And I think that adds to our collective confusion to all of this. And so that's how I think I would start is I am learning as a peacemaker how to hold parts of truths together. And I think that in so doing, we're maybe able to grow our understanding toward a, a better, more shared yes and understanding of this. The, a couple of things that I would offer. One, violence like this is not isolated. It, it does not just suddenly spike out of nowhere. There's context to it. And some of the work that I'm doing and have been doing over the years is to understand the, the violence and the trauma that has given rise to an ideology like Hamas. And mm -hmm. that would cause Hamas to engage in the atrocities that they engaged in just over a week ago. Simultaneously, yeah. I've been working really hard over the past decade to grow my understanding of the pain and the violence and the trauma that has given rise to the governance that has caused a militarized occupation of Palestinian people in the Gaza and the West Bank. And so the hard work for us right now is to understand the pain that builds ideologies that then manifest in acts of violence. I think so often we just look at the violence and then we compare whose violence is worse or whose violence is more justified. And then we side with kind of who, who we maybe feel most sorry for or who we believe the most in. Mm -hmm. When what we need to be doing is we have to be growing our understanding of the pain of another. 
And once we grow an understanding of the pain, then we can begin to understand the ideology and not in a way that justifies the violence, but helps us at least understand it. And so I think that's first and foremost. So there is deep context that lies behind this particular spike in violence. And we're going to be able to hear more from that from our Israeli and Palestinian friends in, in the days and weeks to come. Um, which leads me to, this is the last thing I'll say, because I'd love to hear what, you, what you're hearing, Oshida, is the reason that global immersion is involved in this conflict. It's not like we just pointed to a conflict on the map and said, let's be about that one. You know, we could be about, hmm. there's 50 some contemporary, crazy armed crises happening on, on our planet at the minute. We could choose any of them. Why did we choose Israel-Palestine 12 years ago? And the, the, the answer to that in the most simplest form is because we are intimately involved in this conflict as U.S. American Christians and more specifically as U.S. American evangelicals. We are mm -hmm. intimately involved and we're going to grow our understanding of that in the days and weeks to come as we're going to host kind of like a virtual immersion experience We'll be able to wrap our heads and hearts around what I just said. We as U.S. American Christians and evangelicals more specifically are intimately involved in this conflict or put another way, maybe more viscerally, we have blood on our hands and it's past time for us to really understand that. One right. of the things that I'm paying attention to in this regard, though, is that the way that people are telling their truth right now is dehumanizing their other. And so there's a way in which Palestinians are talking about this, Israelis are talking about this, Americans are talking about this, conservatives are talking about this, liberals are talking about this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm watching mm -hmm. us all talk about it in a way that demonizes the person on the other side or demonizes the group on the other side. And yeah. I think that what we have to do is the hard work of making sure that we reflect a lot more thoughtfully on what's going on, a way that is far more human, far more sympathetic, far more empathetic. I think that the way that I'm watching people comment on this is there's a rigid certainty that's lying behind it. And I think we need to soften our certainty. I think all of us need to raise our hand. And this is coming from someone who's been in the trenches for 12 years on this issue. I think we all need to raise our yeah. hand. I need to soften my certainty because I don't claim to fully understand what's going on here. And so to lob all of these premature conclusions that are demonizing and dehumanizing our other, all that's doing is perpetuating the cycles of violence. And we're watching that now play out in the streets of the United States, you know, as violence is now being done to Jews and Muslims in the streets of our own cities here. So. Yeah. I'm going to throw it back to you. I, what, what are you hearing in some of that, Oshida? I'm hearing a lot. I think the biggest thing that I'm hearing is just how complex it is, how tender, you know, when you've been hurt and you have a wound that's still open, everything, even like the wind, like everything just makes it hurt. Um that's what this feels like to me, that this is a wound that's open. And, and so there's just so much live nerve pain that's going on. And it makes me think of something that I particularly hate when there's any sort of big crises is I will go to a prayer vigil and I will get so frustrated when I go to these vigils when it's just a bunch of talking heads who are like getting up and just saying a bunch of stuff about the issue or doing these big like calls to action 
Because for me, the practice of vigil is that holding the space for silence, for curiosity, for being with each other and letting the spirit show us how to navigate the complexity. And so what I'm hearing, what I'm personally feeling, and this might be the contemplative activist coming out in me, is that I need to craft some space for vigil every day from this moment on while this conflict is kind of at this peak to know how to respond and what the spirit is telling me I need to do within my context because my biggest fear, Jer, is the helplessness and hopelessness and the eventual apathy, like the apathy that comes because I feel so distant from that. I just I just really want to resonate with that because I, I think that's a very natural experience. And w- what I'm alarmed by, and I think what we need to be cautious of right now is the voices that are monetized to offer quick conclusions mm-hmm. on things mm-hmm. like this. Because what that does, and I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, leading voices in Christian evangelicalism and periodicals and so the way that I'm hearing and watching statements very quickly emerge here. What that tells me is that these leaders are not being thoughtful. You're not holding vigil. You're not seeking nuanced understanding. All you're doing is regurgitating what you think you already know. And the danger then is when you have a larger platform, it meets people in their apathy and it gives them the toeholds and the traction that they need to think a certain misdirected kind of way. It creates sense for people who are troubled by what they're seeing, but then they hear the classic talking points, whether that's conservative or progressive, and they go, oh, okay. It it brings a sense of false security and a false center, which simply reinforces what I think I already know. That's really super dangerous when we're talking about any kind of conflict, much less a conflict like this, where in this moment in time, many of the voices that are coming to quick, eloquent conclusions are doing so in a way that is perpetuating an unjust, violent theology that will result in what might be a next genocide here, an unchecked massacre of folks, which is absolutely outrageous. If the responses from Christian folk that we're seeing do not align with an enemy-loving, cross-wearing God, it is not legitimate. And we have to be very cautious about how we're discerning how those people are informing the way that we're thinking about it. So I'm in agreement with you. We need to hold vigil and be very careful about the words that we're saying. But before we say anything, we should probably be listening very deeply to all sorts of different truths and experiences in this regard. Yeah. This past weekend, I got to lead with the Evolving Faith Conference, and we did prayers of the people in the morning, and I felt very strongly to lead us at the very end of my prayers of the people time in a specific posture to the violence in Israel, Palestine. I felt very led, but I also felt very inadequate to be in front of everybody praying because I didn't know exactly the right way to pray. Because like you said, and like I've heard you say, and like I know, it's incredibly complex. There's so many different stories and emotions and 
all this violence doesn't happen within a vacuum. There's years and years and all, all these things. So I was just really mindful of that and holding that. And as I was walking, as I was getting ready to walk out on the stage, I like turned to one of my friends and I was like, what do I say? I don't want to say, but can there be peace in the Middle East? That sounds so trite. Like, I don't want to say conflict because that sounds, that minimizes. I don't want to say, I, I just felt so stuck. And they gave me some words and I did the best I could. I'm imperfect, but I did the best I could. But I still left that moment of prayer. And I did the, you know, the evangelical pastor thing where you say, the spirit has words we don't have, you know, trusting in that. But I still feel as a peacemaker who wants to be able to talk about this to those in my life, I I, I feel like I need some guidance. How should we talk about what is going on? Even if you want to just give us like a two minute history recap, can you just help us kind of be able to use our everyday words to frame our responses and the way we talk about it in a way that honors our enemy loving cross-wearing God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll offer some reflections here and let's see how it's helpful. I think first and foremost, we have to understand that there are geopolitics involved in the creation of the modern state of Israel. There's collective global trauma involved in why that happened. There's a huge Christian undergirding and support for why this happened in 1948. And there are so many factors involved in the genesis of the nation state of Israel that I think the development of it is very important. And especially coming out of the trauma, the terror, the violence, the genocide of the Holocaust. And I think there were decisions that were made by an international community that caused the nightmare, the trauma, the terror of Palestinians who inhabited the land. And so when you have Western European Jews who are fleeing the trauma of a Holocaust, coming in feeling like they have the international support of li- literally the, the world behind them as we, we carried the guilt and shame of the Holocaust and wanted to find a way to create a space where the Jewish community could be safe and could have the right of defense. In order for that to happen, a land that was deeply inhabited by a, a generous people, a hospitable people, had to be conquered, had to be taken. And, and then you infuse all of this unique biblical theology around whose land is it and who has ancestral ties to it and God's promises and who's God's promised people. And does that mean that God has a sub- you know, some kind of exclusive affection for one bloodline over another. There are all of these conversations that inform Mm -hmm. what began Mm -hmm. 75 years ago. I think what we have to understand is that God, first and foremost, doesn't play favorites, doesn't have a superior bloodline, isn't exclusive in his affection. God is a God who is unbelievably (laughs) pro-human, you know? And I think... God's affection was assigned by human beings on one family over another. And that theology has undergirded what's been going on here from a U.S. American perspective. So I think it's helpful for us just to know one community's pain and the support behind it theologically and geopolitically created another community's nightmare. And that nightmare has been unfolding for 75 years. And so that's what I'm talking about in terms of context. From a U.S. American perspective, I think we have to be more honest about our own country's residual guilt 
around our inactivity around the Holocaust. We knew this was happening and we didn't do anything to stop it. In our history books, we like to celebrate ourselves as the great liberators of the camps and whatnot. But in fact, we knew what was going on and we didn't stop it. And we carry Mm -hmm. residual guilt there, but we also have an end times theology that says, uh, ultimately, this whole thing is going to burn. There's an Armageddon coming and Jesus is going to come back on the Temple Mount or Haram al-Sharif, which is this little hilltop in Jerusalem. And so everything from the Crusades until contemporary moment, there's been a fight for that little tiny rectangle of real estate on the planet. And in a very simplistic form, many of us as U.S. Americans have been socialized into a faith that says we stand with Israel because Israel is God's chosen people. And we don't understand what that means, but we do that and we think that has to mean an unequivocal support of their military occupation, their fierce militarism, the way in which they treat the Palestinian people. We think that we have to actually get behind them and endorse them holistically. Another problem for us, and this is where we have to be very humble as U.S. Americans, is when I talk to Israelis about a military occupation and the way that they're inhabiting the West Bank and the Gaza and building walls around people and caging people and political prisoners and all this kind of stuff, my Israeli friends will say, you have to be careful about your moral judgments of us because we're simply following your blueprint. We're following Mm, exactly mm -hmm. what you did in the, and they won't use the word genocide, but in the caging of your indigenous people and in your persecution of the black community. And look, Mm -hmm. it worked Mm -hmm. for you. You got all of the land that you wanted because you believed yourself to be God's people. All of the indigenous people are all caged up and quiet now, aren't they? And you built an economy on the backs of black people. And it worked for you. Look how much wealth you amassed, right? And nobody in the international Mm -hmm. community held you in check. So it's a good point, right? Because we, we have lost our moral authority as a country and as Christians because there was a Christian theology that endorsed the genocide of our indigenous people and the enslavement of, of our African relatives. Right. Right. Like so oh, so gosh. you don't have a moral argument to hold us accountable to anything because we're simply doing what you have done. I think that's important for us to hold on to as US Americans. There's one more thing I want to offer here. And I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but the, You are, the, you are there's there's one more thing I think we have to be aware of is that in our theology as US American Christians and evangelicals, we actually believe that we can expedite the return of Jesus. Like we actually believe that once the nation state of Israel, which would involve the West Bank, the Gaza, everything is exclusively Jewish, then we'll be able to knock down the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque, which currently reside on that little rectangle of real estate on the planet Mm -hmm. and erect the third temple. And then Jesus is going to come back and sit enthroned. A thousand problems with that theology. 100%. Most notably, Jesus doesn't need us to build a temple, Jesus sits enthroned now as the king of the cosmos. Secondly, we actually believe as U.S. American evangelicals that God endorses our accumulation of power at high cost to others. We have created a God figure who endorses our use of violence to accumulate power. So 
So most of us have been socialized into a, a religion that promotes domination rather than a faith that propels restoration. So fundamentally yeah. in our being, we might feel a certain way about the massive level of violence that's happening in the Middle East, but we also understand it because God is okay with the use of violence to accomplish God's means. That's how we understand it, which is a total abdication yeah. of a cross-wearing enemy-loving God. So it's not just whose side are you on, Israel or Palestine, or Hamas yeah. is terrible, and so that justifies all the things. And you know, no, the work that we have to do, and this is my sense of urgency here, is that we have got to disarm American Christianity, because as my Palestinian brother Daoud Nasser at the Tent of Nations says, the moment that American evangelicals follow the Jesus that you talk about, this crisis would be over. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. So I have been doing some reading and some learning and some listening around this. And I still have a thousand questions, partly because my husband is part Jewish. And so we're trying to figure out how we as a family talk about this. So how I want to close this conversation, Jared, it's just that I am so excited about our virtual immersion possibilities, the conversations we have, because I trust the spirit enough and I trust my commitment to peacemaking enough that through learning and listening, I will know what it looks like for me to be a peacemaker in the life that I have now, in the context that I'm in now. And I have this deep, deep desire to get this right. Because I remember when 9-11 happened and I was so steep in evangelical just violence and conquering and you know i was just such an, an incredibly unloving and unchrist-like person when it came to like anyone who looked like they were from the middle east anyone who looked like they were muslim like i had there's just such a deep distrust and almost disdain and superiority that i had and I repented of that. And I just feel like this is a moment where I can get this right. So mm. thank you for leading us into this conversation and for calling us to attend to being peacemakers in this moment. And I really am so grateful for your wisdom. And I'm so looking forward to these conversations because I want to learn. Yeah. So thank you, Jer. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Jer. You bet. I'm going to try to answer your question very briefly, your, your original question that caused me to fly off the handle maybe a little bit. <laughs> I, I I don't want to suggest that this is not a, a an urgent moment. This this is a this is an unbelievably urgent moment. Uh, this it, it will take time for us to disarm our faith. There's a journey that we can take from a religion that promotes domination to a faith that propels restoration. That's the work of global immersion. So journey with us, and I think this virtual immersion will be really helpful. And you need to call your congressperson and demand a stop to the violence right now. There are 2.3 million people who will not have medical supplies, water, or food. Uh, all of the infrastructure in Gaza, and I'm concerned that no one is going to be able to hold this campaign in check. And, and it has to stop. And the only way that it's going to stop without more violence is by getting enough international support to stand in the way of this. And yeah. so I cannot emphasize enough call your congressperson. You'll meet a 23-year-old staffer who's answering phones. 
let them know your name, let them know where you're from, and let them know that you call upon your representative to call an end to this violence. That's all it will take. Our partners with Telos have an incredible script that we're going to put in the show notes here and that give you the, the words to say. It's very simple and it's very critical. The only way your representative is going to do anything is if we melt the phone lines in Washington, D.C., and now is a time to do that. We will not stand by and witness the genocide of the people in Gaza. And that's a role that you can play. There are two yeah. other things that I want to say. One, tune in with us as we host this virtual immersion. Literally at this moment, we were supposed to be concluding our itinerary on the Sea of Galilee. And we weren't able to run our itinerary. And so in a unique way, we're going to bring all of you into the experience, the perspectives, the pain, the hope, the realities of our Palestinian and Israeli friends via our social media channels. Tune in because you have to. <laughs> we cannot wait another for another conflict before we start to say, maybe I need to learn about this. This is the moment. This is the time. We're primarily going to be functioning on Global Immersion's Instagram channel. And so follow us there and tune into these conversations that are going to be unfolding in the days and weeks to come. The last thing I want to say is now is a moment as well to reach toward your Jewish and Muslim friends here in the United States, because the level of terror that they're feeling as the likelihood is increasing that they themselves will experience the violence of what's happening over there, especially as they're being deputized by these premature conclusions that are being lobbed about who Jews are or who Palestinians are from the right and the left here in our country, people are beginning to experience physical pain because of those premature conclusions. And so now is a time, friends, to reach to your Jewish and your Muslim friends. Let them know that you're with them. Ask them what they need. How do they need support? Or just simply say, I'm thinking of you. I love you. I'm with you. It will go a long way. So I think those are things that we can do. Tune in, follow us on Instagram and pay attention to the virtual immersion and reach to your Jewish and your Muslim friends here in, in country. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jer. And I'm just grateful that I get to be in the world with you at this moment as peacemakers. I'm grateful for you and... I'm so glad that you're home safe, and let's do this. The Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is a production of Global Immersion and is made possible by our Embers community of monthly donors. Sincere thanks to the Brilliance for use of their song, Turning Over Tables. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion, forming everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to Mendivides at globalimmerse.org.